Welcome to the FBA Business Before Technology podcast. Our goal is to provide small business owners and key decision makers with valuable nuggets to help you grow or simply improve how you run your business, ultimately looking to increase your profitability. My name's Craig Pollack. I'm the founder and CEO of FPA Technology Services, and welcome to the podcast. Do you ever wonder what other business owners are running up against out there? Are you too busy working in your business to work on your business? Do you ever feel like you're in this thing alone? Are you at a crossroad with your business where some new ideas would help? For nearly 30 years, I've been helping companies grow and improve their businesses by leveraging technology. Whether it's software, hardware, on-prem, or in the cloud, and at the same time, building FPA into the premier IT service provider in the greater Los Angeles area. This experience has given me exposure to hundreds of businesses and all sorts of systems, and as a lifelong learner, has helped me gather all I could about the ins and outs of running a business. And these are the sorts of things I want to share with you on this podcast. Today's guest is going to pull back the curtain and share with us a behind-the-scenes look at his business. Jason Cole is the VP of Operations for Cole Imports and Closeouts, one of the more successful importers and resellers of wholesale merchandise in the industry. Cole Imports sells over 100,000 items, sells merchandise to over 100 countries worldwide, and at the same time still continues to be a very successful family-owned and operated business. Over the years, Cole Imports has constantly reinvented itself to stay ahead of the ever-changing market with the latest change represented by adding the word closeouts to their name. Today, Jason will share with us how they run their business, the major technology changes they've gone through that's propelled them to reach their goals, and even how strategically they're dealing with the recent tariffs on imported goods from Asia. All great stuff. So here we go. Here's my conversation with Jason. Welcome to the podcast, Jason. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me on here, Craig. Appreciate it. Yeah, this is uh, should be uh, pretty cool. I'm, I'm excited. I got some cool things to talk about, and uh, let's jump in. So uh, to jump in, so, so tell me a little bit about yourself, about the company, you know, um, what you guys do, what, how big you are, and, you know, some of the things that are going on these days. That'd be great. Okay. Yeah, I'll start by telling you a little bit about us and who we are and what we do. We're a 35-year-old family business. We are a wholesale importer and exporter of general merchandise and more recently of closeout products. So what that means is we have a very large warehouse in Los Angeles. We're actually just south of downtown LA, about a half a million square feet of warehouse space, a little bit less than that, actually. And um, we import products from China. Over the years, we've imported 50,000 plus SKUs. Currently, we're importing about 8,000 unique SKUs from China, ranging from tools, toys, auto, craft, housewares like clocks and mirrors, all the way to electronic parts. And um, the rest of it we refer to as general merchandise, which could be um, gift bags, or it could be a pencil tire gauge, or it could be a hose for a garden, uh, everything in between. So that's our import division. And then more recently, we've developed a very large presence in the closeout world. And closeout buying is really our most exciting area of the business now. And that is the opportunity buys that we find all around the US. 
So that's domestic buy-in, where we will make offers to companies that are liquidating either a product or a product line or an entire warehouse, or they're going out of business and will buy their entire inventory. So that can be buying a couple hundred pieces of an item or buying a couple of million pieces of an item. And it can range from buying something as cheap as stickers to as high-end as drones and branded NFL merchandise or guitars or high-end Bluetooth speakers that are being sold in Costco and really everything in between. So that's who we are and what we do. And we've been around for 35 years, like I mentioned, and um, we're going through some interesting times right now. So I'm sure we'll get into that, but that's kind of a general overview in, in terms of what the business does. Cool. So, um, so tell me how, how many employees do you guys have? Like how, how big are you at that size? Yeah. So we have about 40 employees in the office ranging from people that handle the operations and sales and logistics and about 42 people in the warehouse handling all incoming and outgoing shipments. Okay. So about 70 people or so. Uh, that's a pretty decent sized company. I mean, a lot of, a lot of bodies to keep track of. Yeah, it is. And um, actually it's more like 80 people at the moment. And we actually just got around to finding some areas where we could reduce headcount, which is a exciting thing, not to be callous, but as business has grown, we've been able to reduce headcount as business has grown, which I'm sure will be exciting to some of your, your business listeners because a lot of that was the direct result of improving technology. Right. So that's, that's a great segue, but we'll come back to that in a second because I, I still want to paint the picture sort of around your environment and what you guys do. So who do you sell to? That's, that's something that's interesting when you say you're, you know, your customers, uh, but you, you sell so many different types of products and I've, you know, I've been down to your, um, office location and, and your warehouse and you have like this huge showroom with all your products laid out, not all, but you know, a lot. It's, it's, it's a huge store. Uh, so who do you, who do you sell to? Who are you, who are your buyers? Who are your customers? Yeah, so it's a pretty um, diverse group. So, you know, we, we like to joke that we'll buy anything that we can sell and we'll sell to anyone that will buy. And that really means that we'll sell to, you know, some of the biggest companies in the world, um, ranging from the major brick and mortar stores all over the country, you know, big lots, 99 cent only. We'll deal with um, Walmart in Central America and Mexico. Um, we have relationships with a lot of the biggest hardware stores all over the country, all the way down to people that sell at swap meets or gift shops and hospitals. We sell to pharmacies, we sell to electronic stores, we sell to um, supermarkets, and we do a lot of business internationally as well. So we do about 60% of our business in the, in the United States and then about 40% of our business in Latin America, Mexico. We do a lot of business in the Philippines, in Costa Rica. We do business in um, actually South Korea. We have customers in Israel and Japan as well. Wow. 
Okay. So you're touching a lot of different places. That's pretty cool. Um, and from the sounds of it, this is mostly B2B stuff, right? You're selling to other resellers and they're ultimately selling to the customer. Is that correct? That That is true to a point. So a few years ago, and I'm sure that we'll touch on this a little bit later when we get into the technological advancements that we've put forward recently. But before we launched our website, we were purely B2B. And after launching our website, we now have a and, pretty and healthy how, consumer. Sorry, how, how long ago was that, that you launched the website? Um, when, about when four and a half years place. ago. Okay, so about four and a half years ago is when you went from purely uh, B2B to a mixed customer type. Right, right. Okay, cool. So what was, I mean, was it the website? Like, like what was the driver of that decision? What made you guys decide to go? Because because I, I would imagine that selling B2B is, is you know, once you kind of have that down, it's you have your processes, you have your procedures, you have your customer list, you know, and you can kind of grow that. And, and I would think as you morph into selling direct to customers, now you're talking about going from large uh quantities and and costs associated with those and shipping and everything else related to selling large quantities to selling smaller quantities perhaps even individual quantities right and how did that decision come to be and and uh were there differences that that you saw between selling to those two different types of end customers oh sure um how the decision came to be is a tricky one because of of channel integrity, right? So, you know, you have to protect your, your customers that you're not selling to their customers. Mm-hmm. So without getting too deep in the weeds, we had to figure out a way that we were able to reach more customers, whether it's, you know, pure consumers or a group that we call SMBs, you know, small to medium-sized businesses, or people that are, you know, we, we like to think of them almost like Costco shoppers. So they're not necessarily consumers, but they're not necessarily a business. So who could that be? If it's a dog walker who walks 50 dogs a week, she may need to continue rebuying dog treats. If she's buying 50 dog treats a week, she's not really a consumer. She's not really a traditional business. Who is she? So we built up our web presence to handle customers like that, our normal B2B business, as well as consumers. So how we did that was, or why we did that, is really to reach out to more people and then to capture more business. But how we did that was all about kind of pricing strategy and then marketing ourselves in a way that allowed people to understand how to buy from us and who we are. Cool. So that kind of dovetails into the next question that I have, which I think um, is, is what, what makes your business unique, you know, and, and is part of what you just described, um, how you go about or how you went about changing from just B2B to B2C and the mixture between those. And, you know, what is the end game? What is it that makes people uh, other than your charming personality and, and all of those on the sales team, uh, why, do, why do they buy from you? Why do you guys have such, you know, why have you had such success over such a long period of time? I mean, it's, it's a great thing, but I think that's something to tap into there. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a good question. And it's one that, you know, 
I'd be foolish to think that it wasn't directly related to, you know, our product mix. You know, we, we have really good pricing. That's um, obviously a big factor, but a lot of what allows us to continue to do business with so many people is the variety of merchandise. So someone who has a hardware store who sells obviously hardware, but they also have a pet section. They have a electronic section. They have an impulse section by the register. Maybe they have a gift section during the holidays. They can come to coal imports and buy a little bit of all those categories. We make it really easy to ship them one order and handle everything in one place. So that's definitely a component part of it. The other part that has really fueled the growth more recently has been our closeout buying. So the closeout side of our business allows us to buy deals that would be unavailable via import. So we're carrying the exact same items you can find in Target at 30% less than you could find them anywhere in the market. So it allows people to buy from us and then wholesale or even retail those items for substantially less than other retailers around the country. So it's a mix between the variety and the value. Okay. So that's pretty cool. So you, you just touched on something that sparked a question in my head, which was um, closeouts. And you guys have been in business for 30 something years, I think. Um, About 35 years. 35 mm-hmm. years. Okay. And so 34-ish of them, right, have been coal imports. And just recently, you mm-hmm. guys literally, not just literally, but technically, you, you, you changed your business name, right? It's, it's now Coal Imports and Closeouts, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and we did that really because we were trying to make people aware of how much of our business had changed. So, you know, the life cycle of the company has not been that we're selling the same products now than we were selling 35 years ago. So 15 years ago or even 10 years ago, the bulk of our products were items that you would find in a traditional dollar store. So there were items that companies would come to us and buy things for between 40 cents and 70 cents, and then retail them for a dollar. We still have a lot of those goods, but now our mix is much more of a replica of a Target or a Big Lots store for those people who've actually been into those retail stores. So it's much more high-end merchandise, but in addition to the product mix being higher end, it's a lot more of a closeout product rather than just imported product. And a lot of the sales growth has been directly tied to the closeout buys that we're getting. So just about an hour ago, my brother who manages the closeout side of the business just bought $60,000 worth of one individual item that is the brand iJoy, which is still the brand that sells in Target and home goods stores. And that item is a very nice $25 Bluetooth speaker that we will be able to sell to our customers for $10 to allow them to retail it for $17 to $20 and undercut Target. So when you are in a position to buy an item that allows you to be at market under a mass market retailer, as a retail store, it gives you a lot of power and it gives the consumers a lot of reason to visit those 
retail shops. So we wanted to continue to impress on people that not only do we have our import side of the business, but we also have the closeout, which is really almost like a doorbuster type deal on the retail side. But those closeouts are like the doorbuster deal on the wholesale side. Right. Well, that explains all of that. So that's what's interesting or what I'd, I'd find interesting is um, because that's such a big change to your business model, you, you know, literally you change the name of your business. What was that mm-hmm. like? Like what was, how, how long did that take to come about? And was there somebody in the company who said, hey, I've got an idea. Let's change the name of the business. What do you guys think? I mean, like how, how does that happen within your business? Is, is did it, did, did somebody come up with that or was it, you know? How, yeah, I think that it was, you know, it, it was, it was fairly simple really. It's, it's just that we realized that the imports were not who we are in its entirety. And we had to convey that message. And as we did more and more closeouts, we felt the need to um, make clear to people that that is who we are. So as a lot of our newer customers are only buying closeouts from us, um, we needed to include that in the name. Well, so again, I'm trying, I'm trying to peel this back a little bit, but like, how did, how did it actually happen? Did, did you, do you guys have like a leadership meeting? Do you have a planning meeting? Did somebody from within the company bring it up? Did, um, you know, Rob or Danny, who are the, the, the co-founders and I believe co-presidents, did, did one of them bring it up or how did, how did the germ of the idea start? to say, we, we should change the name of our company now. You know, it's something that we've been talking about for many years because um, to be straightforward, the name Coal Imports has never been a name that kind of conveys much. You know, it doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily have the brand appeal that, that we would have um, wanted if we almost going to restart the company, you know, with a consumer facing website when you're doing pay-per-click ads and you're saying, you know, buy dog toys, coal imports, and people don't know what the name coal imports is, it doesn't convey much of a message. So that, that has always been apparent, but I think it was maybe two years ago where actually Danny, you know, mentioned we should change the name to coal imports and closeouts. And, um, you know, it wasn't much of a, a meeting really. It became fairly obvious. And then, you know, one day I was just getting a lawyer and, uh, you know, all the paperwork together and doing it. Right. Right. Okay. Well, that's cool. I mean, it's interesting that, uh, again, there are so many of these sort of behind the scenes things that happen in the life cycle of a business, um, that, that people on the outside don't realize, right. We, we just saw the name change recently. Uh, but you guys knew that it needed to happen two years ago or more. Right. So mm-hmm. that's, that's pretty cool. That's pretty interesting. So, that's some great stuff in terms of the background of the company. Um, tell me a little bit more about like what you do. What's, what's your day-to-day? What are you responsible for? And, and, and how does that play out? Yeah, so as being a part of a family company and having a leadership role, the day-to-day changes pretty wildly. And the title of, of my you know, position doesn't necessarily convey what my day looks like. So I think it's a, it's a fair question. So my title is VP of business development, and that could range from um, a pretty wide variety of topics day to day. So, you know, within my general scope of responsibilities, I manage the warehouse and the warehouse team. 
I manage the infrastructure and the infrastructure um, group of, of products that we run. So we have a ERP and then a website and then um, all of the data that comes in and out of the, the company from a technical perspective. And then I, I've been doing a lot of selling over the last couple of years that I've developed um, a lot of our larger consumer facing accounts uh, I manage on the sales side as well as um, advising the buying team. So, you know, in a family business where the leadership team all physically is within a small proximity, when there's big decisions to be made, there's quick reactive decisions on a lot of areas. So when looking at a buying decision or looking at a management decision, usually the, the main leadership team will come together and, and have a general understanding of kind of the components in play. So I may be getting a little bit off topic in terms of what your question was, but my, my day-to-day I think encompasses warehousing control, infrastructure control, and then sales management, and then buying. Okay. So a lot of responsibility there, <laughs> to say the least. Right. Yeah. So um, so where are you guys at right now uh, in terms of the growth of your company of, you know, I know that we've, we've, we've been working with you guys for I think around six or seven years now. Um, and I've seen a lot of changes over that time and we can talk about some of that stuff, but wh- where are you at right now in terms of um, where you're at and where you want to get to? What, what does that look like? Yeah. So what we're going to, we're in, a, we're in a really good place as a company right now. We're we're growing um, at a pretty good clip. The 35-year-old company, we were up about 11% in net sales year over year last year. And we intend to be right around that number this year. We're actually a little bit outpacing that goal as of right now. So we feel good about that. Um, about five years ago, we had the goal of of doubling a company within five years. And we are right along track with that goal as well. So in terms of where we're at as a company, that's where the healthy growth um, rate, a lot of that is tied to our closeout side of the business. Um, I think it'd be interesting for us to discuss a little bit about some of the challenges tied to that, even though we are growing, but as a company that does a lot of importing, we're definitely being challenged by these uh, tariffs in the China and the U.S. trade war and our ability to bring in new China items on the import side has been severely limited. So even though we are growing, we'd be growing significantly faster if it wasn't for the the trade war and um, the price increases and the uncertainty tied to the prices kind of before and after tariffs have been announced. Mm-hmm. And and how is that? I mean, how is that? You mentioned that some of the products or some of the you'd be selling. Would you be selling more of the same products? Or I think you mentioned something like you'd you'd be selling new and different products, but the tariffs are preventing you from getting to some of these other products. Is that, is that the case? Yeah. So there's there's a lot of different things there. So um, our our buying trips were were frozen to go to China and search for new products for um, almost six months when the tariffs were being introduced, you know, initially, um, 
we were unable to go to China and buy products because we were uncertain of what the duties and the tariffs would be once the products were bought. So, so that so was something. Hold, sorry, that was something that you guys. When when you say your buying trips were frozen, that was something that was a conscious decision that you guys put in place, right? It wasn't wasn't correct. anything the government saying you can't go. It was just you guys going. Correct. Put a pause on it. That, that, that's it's right. So but in, in right. practicality, it's it's. Well, it's a tariff. It's challenging to go over right. there and say I'm going to buy something for let's call it a dollar and not know if you're really paying a dollar or if you're really paying a dollar twenty five. Mm-hmm. So the the retail pricing of the item obviously gets increased by that same level and it becomes very difficult to gauge if it's a profitable purchase or not. So that's the reason that initially was frozen. And then on our, our rebuys from China, the idea of having a tariff has resulted in a number of items not being rebought because our ability to resell them after the rebuy would be impacted by the tariff. Mm-hmm. So that's another issue. And then a, a final issue is that a lot of our customers are impacted by that tariff. So customers are, are leery in paying the new wholesale costs on items because they've been impacted by the tariffs that either were in effect before we bought the item or after we rebought the item. So it has an impact on the direct selling of the merchandise. Right. So that's where the closeout portion of your business is really sort of helped out that, that you don't have those sorts of headaches hanging over you. Is that um, giving you the opportunity to focus on that more? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good way to put it. You know, the, the closeout side of the business is all domestically sourced. So mm-hmm. the, the beautiful part about buying closeouts for us is, the company that originally imported it paid those tariffs or the duties. So if we buy a warehouse stock lot in Ohio and we ship it from Ohio to California, we're paying only the shipping and not the tariffs that originally had to come from the importing of those merchandise. Right. Okay. So you mentioned that, that five years ago you had a, a growth goal of doubling the company in five years and you're kind of on target for that. What were, were there any major initiatives that you, you thought you needed to put in place to achieve that? Or was it purely, hey, we just need to ramp up and, and build the sales team up and, you know, knock on doors and just sell more? I mean, were there structural things that you needed oh, sure. to do in the company? Um, oh, sure. Yeah. What, what sorts of things were they? You know, actually, um, funny enough, we, we have not increased the number of people on our sales team. Um, it hasn't been about headcount on the sales team at all. Um, hmm. So we, we had a awesome. few different major goals um, or initiatives toward the goal of doubling the company. The first was we had to get the warehouse prepped to handle that growth. Um, from a management standpoint and from a from a leadership and a, and a functional standpoint, the warehouse had to prepare itself to handle that growth. So we had that initiative. Um, we had the initiative of how do we market our, our website. So at the time, our website had either just launched or was just about to launch. And we had to figure out how to handle consumer advertising. We had never done pay-per-click on a large scale. We had never 
paid money for SEO, affiliate marketing, um, referral marketing, social media marketing, all of those things had to be tried and tested and, and built upon. Um, and we're spending a lot of money on, on social media marketing and, and all the different areas of marketing I just mentioned. And then we also had to grow the clothes outside of our business. Um, we've been actively hiring more buyers and training buyers to source closeout deals. And we've done a very good job of that. And then finally, we had to refocus what types of companies that we would go after. So when we were a company that sold a lot more dollar store merchandise, we weren't selling to you know, large-scale electronics companies. We weren't selling to companies that were buying that large Bluetooth speaker that I just mentioned. So our, our customer list has had to evolve and uh, continues to evolve. Wow, those are those are pretty major initiatives. Those aren't things that are taken lightly, right? I mean, I would assume also that they kind of take a long time, right? Isn't it something that um, you, you can't just flip a switch and have, okay, let's just get the warehouse organized. Okay, let's have oh, that sure. done on Tuesday, <laughs> right? Yeah, I, I actually physically moved my desk out to the warehouse for almost four months. I um, the warehouse is not operating well, so I actually physically built a desk in the dead center of the warehouse and operated out of the warehouse for about four months. So we had to physically change all of the, the inflow and the outflow. I had to change a couple of the management um, personnel out there. We cut staff by about 20% and increased production by about 30% over a four-month period. Wow. That, that's some great stuff, man. Well, thanks. So. When we first started working together, I think, like I said, I think it was about six or seven years ago, um, I got a call from Rob, who is the president of the company or co-president. Basically, um, you, you had, uh, as far as your technology goes, I think you had four in-house IT people, um, two, or, two or three of them were developers. Um, right, two of them were. And, and your lead developer had just given notice and it was, hey, we have this change coming down the pike. Uh, can you guys help put a little bit of perspective on this? Um, and I think that was the starting point, at least from a technology standpoint. Right. You, you had, I mean, you had, what was it, like a 20-year-old ERP system? Um, we did, yeah. The, the phone call probably could have been summarized by just saying, you know, oh, crap, we need some help. What, what do we do? Right. And, um, you know, it was, a, it was a pretty scary situation because, you know, the four people that we had on staff, one of them was a 20-year veteran of our um, of our company who – I just retired and he actually had just retired before you got involved. His, his right-hand man and his protege, so to speak, had been with the company for eight years and was handling all of our development and all of our technology. And he was the one who gave notice. His friend, the other developer, who he hired, ended up quitting about a month after we contacted you and we really had no safety net on how to handle our technology needs. 
And you're right, we had a ERP system that, as funny as it is, it was actually called Distribution 2000. Um, and this was in the year probably 2012 that we talked. Mm-hmm. And Distribution 2000 was implemented in like 1987 with core imports. So it was supposed to sound cool that it was the year 2000 back in the 80s. So it was an MS-DOS-based system from Epicor that was, um, if anyone who's listening has seen the show Lost, it was a black cursor that after every command, you had to hit enter and remember the, the custom keys to get in between screens. So it wasn't internet connected. It was on-prem. It wasn't... Um, easy to use, you know, needless to say, and it also wasn't transferring data between departments. Yeah, and if I, if I remember correctly, you had like all of these custom integrations, you had workstations running timed processes that was moving data from this access database into that thing, and then from that thing into another database, and then from that into the your, your ERP system, um, just all sorts of I mean, it was working, you know, it was very interesting, but, you know, bringing somebody in from the outside was kind of like, okay, uh, you know, you're asking me to do a tightrope walk with no net and, you know, make sure nothing happens. (laughs) Right. Right. It was like being on a boat that was being supported by duct tape, but you were in the middle of the ocean and um, it was, it was still floating, but it was, it was pretty dangerous. Yeah. Um, but it was, I mean, look, it's, we, can, we can laugh about it now. Uh, you guys are in such a different place. Um, but, but tell us if you can, because, you know, for me, it was, it was, uh, it was, it was a pretty rewarding project because I could, I could see where we needed to get to from, from that place. And, and we actually did, right? I mean, you guys made some really hard decisions. And literally, I mean, you have one in-house IT person right now. Right. And, mm-hmm. and run better than ever before and have so yeah. much more capabilities. So um, share with our listeners where you ended up and how you got there. Yeah. So, I mean, I think kudos to you, obviously. I think a lot of it came from the discussions that you and I had. And we spent a lot of time on the phone, almost strategically thinking about what are we trying to do and you know, how are we trying to get there and what, what things are must-haves, what things are want-to-haves, you know, what does that system look like? And, you know, how did we get from there to where we are now? Well, we we spent a lot of time thinking about kind of what system would we want to have, what ERP system. And then also that was before we launched our website or even before we launched our search for which web development platform we would build the website on. So we, Craig, you and I spent time on the phone with, I think, three or four different website platforms, um, Shopify and Big Commerce and Magento, and we selected Magento uh, to build the website on. And we went to coding to that, out of house, uh, not in-house coders. Um, and that's something I would urging and listening to this to do one of the best pieces of advice I ever heard in all of my discussions with out of office um, technological people is, you know, find out what you do and outsource the rest of it. Um, 
never hire people into your company that are not a part of your company's core mission. So what I mean by that is we, what we do at Coal Imports and Closeouts is we buy goods and we sell goods. So when we talked about, do we need an in-house developer? Does that person buy goods or sell goods? The answer is no, they should be out of, out of office. Do we need an in-house um, person to help us migrate to an ERP system or to be our ERP admin? The answer is no. So we found an out of office person to do that. So, um, you know, I would say that's one piece of advice I would give to anyone. Um, you know, I guess Craig, to go back to your question, kind of what did we do after we found the, the web platform? We did a similar search for an ERP platform. And, you know, you and I had a lot of discussions around kind of the first question, which was, should we go on-prem or should we go cloud for an ERP? And, um, you know, after a lot of discussion and kind of around what that would look like, because even though I know cloud's a lot more prominent now than it was then, going back six or seven years like it must have been, cloud wasn't quite as prominent then as it is now, but we made the bold choice to go to NetSuite as a ERP partner. And, um, and then we went toward the NetSuite development from there. Yeah. And I think, uh, are you still using the same NetSuite uh, partner that you started with, or did you have some, you know, how did that play out? Because I know uh, it, it was a pretty, it was a pretty difficult decision. I mean, moving to NetSuite was, it was, Obviously, looking back, it was a great decision. Uh, easy for me to mm-hmm. say, but I'm putting words in your yeah. mouth. Tell me if I'm wrong. But right, no. I, I think it was looking back. It was a great decision, but it was a, it was a really hard point to get to. Yeah. Um, and so, tell us a little bit about like that journey. You know, going from because you guys were custom. It was you had software that was written for the way that your business ran, and and now we're right. talking about hey here's how an ERP system, which is, you know, NetSuite's, you know, one of the industry standards out there, no question. And it's, it's very, very flexible in what it does. But at the same time, it's not going to do everything exactly the way that your business runs. And you're going to have to be forced to change some of your business processes to fit that software. And, and some of those right. things were, were, you know, some of the difficult dis- decision points for you guys. So, right. Right. Um, yeah, we have like four or five things that we had to really customize within our NetSuite environment. And the whole process of getting onto NetSuite took a long time. It almost took a full year from deciding to get onto NetSuite to being live on, on NetSuite. And the cost was significantly more than we had anticipated, which looking back is not surprising. It's like anyone who's doing a remodel of their home will tell you that it ended up being twice as long and twice as expensive as they thought it would be. And moving in that suite was, was pretty similar to that. Um, you know, what, what we had to kind of come together with and, and figure out was kind of how are we going to interact with all of our data? Um, you know, when we were on that old ERP system, all of the data was really hard to, access. You know, we, we were literally hiring people that knew the program Microsoft Access 
And when we wanted a report, we would have to hire these people to like, come up with a report that would more times than not just come out just wrong. And we'd be working with bad data and it would take a long time to get it. And then to customize it would be another project. And um, we had to think about, you know, what do we want to see and how do we want to see it and who should get it and how. So what that meant for us was a few different interfaces for our, you know, one for our sales team, one for our buying team, one for our warehousing team, and, um, and then one for a mobile sales application that our salespeople use out in the field. And how does that all come together and, and react? And, um, you know, it was, it was very tricky. Um, so those were the customizations that we had to do, but, you know, we made it through and we're much better off now than we ever kind of could have imagined to be. Well, that's awesome to hear. So I'm, I'm sure it wasn't, I mean, we talk about the headaches and we talk about the difficulties. Um, what was it like on the culture? What was it like on the people? Cause I would imagine that, you know, at the time you had a decent number of people who'd been you with you for a long time. You know, I'm just talking about administrative side yeah. and people who are using the system, not just the reporting or the IT side, but people using yeah. the in their day-to-day jobs and all of a sudden, hey, you need to learn this new system. And we also, not only do you need to learn a new system, but we're going to have to change some of our processes along the way. So a, a lot of right. change impacting your business. And, you know, as we all know, change is one of the hardest things for everybody to deal with. So how did yeah. that impact your yeah. business when you were actually going through that, that, that change? Yeah, the go live was, was really hard. Um, it was super stressful. Um, you know, a lot of times you're holding your breath. Um, you know, we went live, we weren't able to process credit cards for a few days and we weren't able to ship orders. Our inventory was wrong. And, um, you know, from a personnel side, we had a lot of real big challenges. Um, the manager of our, you know, our logistics department pre-go live was eight people, including a manager who had been with the company for almost 20 years, who the week after go live um, became very apparent that was not going to be able to handle the new system from a, from a change management standpoint. So we had to find a way to redefine that department, I guess you could say. And now that department has gone from being eight people plus a manager um, down to two people with me overseeing those two people as a small part of what I do. So um, wow. operationally completely I mean changed that department. I, I need to touch on that again. I mean, you went from eight people and a manager to two people and you overseeing them. Right. Wow. I, I mean, that that's huge. <laughs> right. Just. In, yeah, it is. Um, yeah. You know, and there's a lot of obviously challenges within that. And it wasn't overnight. It wasn't that we right. the switch right. to go live. And right. then we had, you know, eight less people on day one. But, um, you know, we, we, part of the process after going live was continuing to find more ways to improve and then also to interact with the data. So, you know, as a, as a function of our business, you know, we ship out goods and then once the goods ship, 
we have to um, provide an invoice for what ships. In our old system, to get an invoice, somebody had to literally key in what was pulled in the warehouse and what actually got shipped, meaning if there was any discrepancies between what was ordered and what actually left the building. In the new system, the software that we have to manage the warehouse inputs that directly into NetSuite. So the job function of inputting just keystroking the data was eliminated, as an example. Um, providing bill of ladings, which is a receipt for a trucker. It used to be that someone had to physically type up a bill of lading. Now we have a process where you can do a one-click produce the bill of lading. So every 20 minutes that you save someone um, gets multiplied over and over and results in some real good time savings. Right. Right. I mean, and that's ultimately the goal of, of moving from where you were to where you're at, right? I mean, it, it was right. more than just oh my God, this is an old system and you know, how are we going to support it and let's keep it running to what are the opportunity costs that we're losing because we're on this old system that just doesn't do things as well as new systems can do for you now. Um, and, and some right. of that stuff I would assume, you know, back at the beginning was, is, is kind of a hard sell, right? It's kind of hard to quantify, put an ROI on and then, you know, push that up the, the leadership chain to say, well, here's a lot of reasons why we should make this change. Now, if you're asking me to create an ROI around that, that might be a little difficult, right? Sure. And the, and the hardest thing about that process for us was not necessarily identifying that there was an ROI to be had, but more understanding kind of who would implement the project behind NetSuite. Um, you know, luckily, you know, we had some people here in the building that really understood all of our departments uh, on a pretty intricate level and understood kind of every little process that needs to get done. Because when you implement a new ERP, every little step of every little process needs to be thought through because if one step in one process does not work, it could have really big ripple effects down the line. So, you know, it truly takes a accounting of every single process in the whole organization, both pre-go-live and then post-go-live, and then after go-live, you know, reimagining what that process would look like with more data and more flexibility and continuing to redefine how to improve it. Mm-hmm. And I would assume also, again, knowing your business and knowing enough about how, how you guys actually work, um, I don't want to gloss over the fact about, you know, you mentioned mobile and handhelds um, and, and how critical that was as a component to have that working, right? Because you, you guys do a lot of order taking uh, away from computers, away from the internet. And so that was, you know, you had it, you had a solution, it was custom, but it worked and it worked really well. And so it wasn't something that you could just uh, turn off and say, okay, a year from now, we'll get it working again. It was how do we make right. the transition? And at the same time, you know, because that's a pretty big piece of the puzzle and a pretty big piece to mm-hmm. not lose. And, and I know, you guys go to a lot of shows and do a lot of shows where you're taking right. orders remotely, right? So 
Um, And we're not getting too far into it because I'm not actually at liberty to talk about it in great detail, but we actually engaged with one company that was going to build a whole order management system. And we got pretty far down the path of engaging with them. And then we came to the realization that they were not able to build what we needed them to build and and we backed out. So, you know, there's, there's major challenges with going down ERP transition. And, um, you know, with all that said, our system now for entering orders is so much better than the system ever could have been in the old platform. The amount of data that we're able to get now is like incredible. How easy it is to customize is like truly incredible. Like a month ago, I had to talk to our developer about adding in a identifier for which items have a tariff as an example. Mm-hmm. And I, I built that software with the developer um, and I emailed him and I said, here's my idea. And then he charged me for three hours of work and we had a whole customization built out. And um, that's kind of the power of having an outsourced developer with a cloud-based system and that, you know, I don't retain his services for, months i need one little thing and he does it and then it's pushed live to our whole team whether they're in china or in el salvador or in los angeles everyone can see the same system right well that's awesome i mean i think it it is one of those things that's really hard for some people to wrap their brains around um letting go and and focusing on your you know your core business right and that's that, that is a big part of what we do, right? We're outsourced IT mm-hmm. providers. We act as your outsourced IT department. Um, and so we, we see that every day. And where does it make sense? Well, where, you know, and, and it's, it's probably, it's, it's getting to a certain level of maturity in your ownership and leadership of a company to, to be able to decide when to let go of stuff and, and not have to feel like you have to own everything soup to nuts. And you know, to that, to that end, right. I mean, here we are talking about, you know, all the pain points, the difficulties, the budget concerns. I mean, you know, there are a lot of speed bumps and hurdles for you guys to get over to, to make this a successful transition. Right. And here we are six or seven years later. And you're telling me that five years ago, you had a goal of of doubling your company in five years and, and you're, you know, on track to doing that. And I mean, could you have done that? Could you have seen doing that, staying in the system that you had before and the paradigm that your business operated in before as compared to what you're using now? I would have been thrilled if you could have told me I could have snapped my fingers and been where I was to where we are now. It would have been almost beyond belief. Um, So I'm not sure the answer to your question is a yes or no, but we're very happy with kind of how things have shaken out. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. That's, that, that's really cool. And, uh, I mean, from my perspective as well, uh, I know where to draw the line, right? When we were working together on this whole project, it was, I can give you some guidance, but you know, I'm not, I'm not going to pretend to be the ERP guy anymore. We used to do it, but we don't do it anymore. Let's bring somebody in. Let's bring an expert in. Let's figure out who the right guys are to work with. Same thing with Magento, right? We used to be web developers, but this is a whole different level. Let's bring in the right person and have you work with whoever that might be. So it's Mm -hmm. really about finding the right answer for your business ultimately. Right. That's, Mm -hmm. and I think that's, that's a relationship that we want to have. And I think that's when you get down to it, that's, 
that's the relationship you have with your customers and, you know, and, and I would assume with your, your partners who are helping you do these modifications and bolt-ons and add-ons and, and getting your, your system to really, you know, be optimized for you. Right. Mm-hmm. So are there any other like uh, technology areas that, that you're looking into right now? Is there anything that you think, okay, you know, we, we made this really big change, but here's the next one that we'd like to take a, a look at. Are there any, any specific systems or any, any things that you're looking at right now? I'm really happy to say that there's not. Um, we, we went through a lot of that, of that pain and a lot of that transition um, and I think we've almost come through it now. We have a great technology foundation between, and actually, I, I do have to rephrase that. That's actually not really true because you know, we were on the Magento um, platform and, you know, they're forcing everyone to move from Magento 1 to Magento 2. So mm-hmm. we, we do have to go through a Magento replatforming. So we are rebuilding our website on Magento 2 and I'm, I'm frankly not very excited about the transition because it's a forced transition right. because Magento is no longer supporting M1. Um, and it's going to cost us a lot of money essentially to rebuild what we already have on M2. But um, besides that, we're not looking at any kind of major technological shifts. And uh, what are you thinking these days around, uh, are you? Um, around security and cybersecurity, around you know controlling and keeping your 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 network and your data safe, has that been an issue? Has that been something that? Because um, I, I know that you know we work with a number of different industries, and depending on the industry, everybody has a different sort of perception and, and also perspective around cybersecurity and you know what they have to do and what they'd like to do and um, mm-hmm. how they approach that. Is is that Anything that, that you guys think about it all these days or, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, we, um, we do get fraud issues quite a bit on the web. Um, you know, as an international wholesaler that deals with e-commerce, we get tested a lot. And, um, you know, it could be that people have a... Uh, a fake credit card number. It could be that people send over fake orders via email and say, ship this order on terms. Um, we'll pay you back. And they don't really have terms and they don't really have um, credit with us. You know, we, we do get phishing scams a lot. Um, the email where people email our accounting department um, disguised as some of the executive team where you know, maybe instead of, um, you know, my email address being what it is, it's a, it's a variant on that, that is sent as if it looks like me telling our accountant that they need to wire something to a certain address. Um, you know, we've had emails that go to our employees that claim that there's a Bitcoin scam or there's threats made on their personal security unless there's a Bitcoin payment made, um, you know, any of the above. So it's not as if, you know, you can stop thinking about, you know, how secure you are. Um, you know, with that said, 
the, some of the peace of mind that we have is that with the cloud-based solution, you know, the idea of hosting all that data is not our direct responsibility. So before you and I started working together, we had an on-prem server with an on-prem um, rack for all of our data, all of our images, all of our financials, and our IT person was as ridiculous as this sounds now, saving a copy of all the data and bringing it in his briefcase home with him every night and bringing that hard drive back into the office and updating it daily. And um, obviously that's not happening anymore, but you know, there are other things that you think about that could happen, but it just evolves with kind of time and how the new challenges, you know, come into be. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, in your industry, you, you don't have the same compliance needs as, as say, you know, investment advisors or CPAs or in the banking and finance industry. Um, and you're not touching that sort of data, right? It's, it's different sort of um, requirements. So cybersecurity has different meanings to different people. Um, so it's great to hear that, you know, in, in terms of technology in general, you've gotten it to a really solid place. Um, what do you think outside of technology, you know, again, you, you mentioned that you, you, your goal five years ago was to double the company in five years. What do you have any, any BHAGs, uh, going on for the next five years or next 10 years? Where do you want to get the company? And, um, you know, part A is where do you want to get the company and part B might be, what, what do you see as some of the biggest challenges that you might face to, to get there? Yeah, so I think you know a lot of the biggest challenges over the last five years were technological. You know, building whether it was you know the website or the ERP, and then preparing our internal infrastructure, meaning primarily the warehouse staff. And you know, we've we've overcome a lot of those challenges. So now a lot of our challenges are really how do we get back to what we do and doing it really well. So buying more goods and selling more goods. So it's expanding our closeout buying, expanding our China um, importing, and then opening up new customers that would have never bought from us before. So um, as an example for that, I won't name who it is in particular, but you know, just a few months ago at our largest trade show that we go to um, twice a year in Las Vegas, we, we wrote an enormous order with a, with a major hardware company, a national hardware company, that, um, that bought items that we wouldn't have carried a few years ago, a mix of closeouts and a mix of higher price imports. So as a result of us improving our, our buying, as a result of us improving our infrastructure, and as a result of us improving our ability to reach out and to sell the companies like that, it really opens up a whole new, um, a whole new kind of world of customers that we can go after. So, kind of really tapping into that new group of customers and, and you know, putting ourselves out there is where we are now. Well, that's cool. So, 
kind of circling back, you you had mentioned that it's a family-run business. Um, what's what's that dynamic like, and and how do you see that playing out over the next few years um, around your role, your brother's role, and 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 Robin and Danny's roles? Like, because um, I know that uh, Robin Danny, you know, who the founders, um, it it seems like they're starting to hand over the reins a little bit more and more to you guys, the, the next generation. Mm-hmm. Is, that, is that an accurate right. sort of picture of what's going on in terms of the life cycle of where the business is at? Yeah, it definitely is. You know, um, the, the family transition is not one that is a, a rule-based transition. You know, it's okay. a much more of a living, breathing, you know, iterative process where, things come about that, you know, as an example, you know, my, my dad, Rob, for 30 years met with the bankers, you know, last time we met with the bankers, you know, it was more me meeting with the bankers than him, but it's maybe not entirely me, but maybe two years from now, it will be entirely me. Um, And that's not a hard and fast plan, but it's just a process that, is you know in flow and that same idea is in place within other areas of the business so my brother andy manages all of the closeout buying and selling five years ago andy wouldn't have made the same buying decisions that he's making now without having a sounding board of myself and rob and danny where now Andy is extremely comfortable making as large of a purchase as anyone in the company has ever made on closeout products without having anyone else involved. So, you know, that type of a decision isn't a decision that is made based on a timeline. It's based on a, a feel, a, a trust factor and a, a readiness factor. So a decision-making process on those speakers, as I mentioned earlier, can't be set up on a timeline like January 1st, 2019, Andy, you can buy any quantity you want without discussing it with someone. That would never be a logical step to take. But, you know, as time goes along, as Andy feels more and more um, confident in his ability to make larger and larger decisions on his own, he'll continue doing that. And that's the same with all areas of the business, whether it's accounting decisions, whether it's management decisions related to personnel, hiring, firing, whether it's related to warehousing decisions or whether it's related to um, item decisions or really anything in the business. That's kind of the way that we handle the transition. Right. Well, I think how you're describing that is is sort of the typical entrepreneurial approach to, to business in general, which is, um, you know, a lot of times you have to be nimble. You have to be able to um, make decisions on the fly. And oftentimes, you know, you just, you can plan and you can have a strategy and you can have a business plan and you can have a budget, um, but things come up, right? Like, like you said, the example mm-hmm. of making that buying decision, um, that opportunity arose and it, and it wasn't something that was pre-planned that was, hey, when this opportunity arises, okay, now you're okay, you've got approval to make this decision. It's, it's 
I don't want to say it's it's sort of gut and feel, but th- that's what happens a lot of times in, in entrepreneurial businesses is a situation arises. And if you have the right competency and the right people in place and the right, um, you know, expectations and, and accountability, you get people making good decisions and, and learning and growing and moving on to the next step. Right. And that's right. That's what it sounds like to me is just, you know, that sort of situation. Right. It's almost as if, um, you know, and maybe this is a, maybe this is a good example. Maybe it's not, I'm not really sure. I'm not somebody who works at Facebook, but I'd imagine that, you know, when Mark Zuckerberg hired Shell Sandberg, he didn't say to her on day one, on day X, you're going to have this responsibility group. And on day Y, you're going to have this responsibility group. As the trust grew and as her role grew and as the company grew, her responsibility list grew. And that's kind of the way that we handle it here. Um, as the company is growing and as our departments are evolving and growing, the responsibilities and the, the decision-making grows with it. Right. Well, that's some great stuff. I mean, and that, that kind of ties into, I, I kind of wanted to circle back a little bit to just real quickly kind of wrap things up, but talk a little bit about you and uh, sort of what drives you and some other questions. Cause I think um, personally, I know, you know, it's sort of silly for me to just say, Hey, are you in a peer group? Cause I kind of know the answer, but Hey, are you sure. in a peer group, Jason? <laughs> Well, um, I'm, I'm actually not anymore. I actually, I've been in Vistage, or I was in Vistage for, for quite a long time, about five years. And okay. about four months ago, I left the group. And um, you know, with that said, I still would advocate for it. Um, my group went through a number of transitions, and the group actually was merged with another group, and I wasn't able to go along with that merge. But um mm-hmm. You know, I was in a in a peer group for quite a while, and actually, I think it did a lot to help me. Um, for those listeners who don't know what Visage is, it's a leadership advisory board for CEOs and key executives of of companies that meet their their size requirements. So, for sizable companies, people that are in leadership positions is another way to put it. So, right. Um, you know, yeah, I was in a group for, for quite a while and, you know, the people in the group weren't importers or wholesalers, but they were people in entertainment, Hollywood, um, lawyers, we had people in manufacturing, we had people in uh, beauty, we had people in, um, in healthcare, there was healthcare executives. So, you know, just hearing other challenges that business owners and leaders were up against and kind of how they reacted to those challenges, I think definitely helped shape, you know, the last five years for me because I was going through a lot of really major, you know, almost seismic challenges and how we think and operate and kind of being able to bounce that between those leaders was pretty helpful. Right. So can can you give me an example of, of a situation that, um, you ran across that maybe I'm I'm not asking you to like break down what the conversation was within the Vistage group itself, but can you give me an example of a situation that came across your desk or, you know, that you found yourself in and looking back, you learned something in Vistage that helped you get through that. Yeah, I, I definitely can't. I think that the, the one that stands out to me is the, almost the maximum that I brought up earlier to 
find ways to only focus on what your business is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I was going through the transition to NetSuite and then on to Magento, you know, we were debating hiring more developers in-house, developing um, an in-house admin for NetSuite. And a lot of these companies had, you know, similar challenges, you know, whether it was people in the entertainment business or lawyers that have a lot of, of data to process or people in healthcare that were kind of echoing some of the challenges that I was going through from a data standpoint and um, being able to talk to them about how to divide up where we should spend our in-house resources was really helpful. Cool. So, so let me ask you this question Um, because I think, you know, we've had uh, offline, we've had lots of really interesting questions around business and some of the challenges that, that you've run into some of the challenges we've run into and, you know, how similar a lot of these challenges are regardless of your size of business or industry that you're in. Uh, Mm -hmm. But, but given where you're at, and I mean, and I think that you've, you have a pretty significant amount of responsibility for where you're at in your career and your age and and all those sorts of things. Um, What, what sort of advice would you give your younger self? Like if you were looking back and, and, you know, when you were 22, 24, 25, something like that, you know, you're relatively fresh out of school, maybe a couple of years. Like what would you have told yourself? Um, a lot more happens in the course of a year than it feels like it happens in a day to day. You know, so if you look back, you know, almost in the course of this discussion, talking to you about what we and what I've been doing the last five years, it's almost like staggering to think about all of the changes in personnel and management and infrastructure and all this thing that happens. But in the day to day, I remember thinking about so many times that I would drive home from work and feel like I was in a, in a, in a race car that was stalled out and I couldn't make any progress. But in looking back on it, a lot more happened than I gave credence to happening at that time. So I think what I would say to my younger self is, you know, be patient, realize that a lot of things are happening, that you are moving at a good speed and that good things will come. Wow, that's that's some pretty wise uh, words of wisdom there. To for oh, somebody, you asked a deep question. I right. tried to ask a deep question. No, that's <laughs> awesome. Um, that's it, it's really interesting because I think I I personally find um, my 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 reason. I don't want to say my reason for being, but my my. Uh, <laughs> uh, thing that I'm supposed to learn here on, on this, during this journey is patience. And I think all entrepreneurs feel that, which is how do I move this thing faster? How do I get more done? Yeah. And I don't mean more done in a day-to-day meeting, but you know, how do, how do I make more of an impact? How do I get this thing going? And that's exactly what you're talking about is we have this frustration that we can't make things happen fast enough, but to tell yourself at a younger age, Hey, just have the patience because you are actually moving the bar. That, that's a pretty wise thing. So I give you kudos for that. That's pretty cool, Jace. Yeah, thanks. So yeah, I, I think the hardest thing about that, and just to expand on it a little bit more, is that um, 
you know, the, the things that are holding you back, I think if you just continue to work on kind of what your biggest, maybe this is another thing that I learned in that, in that group is that the things that are the, the biggest challenges, even though it may seem obvious and, and clear when you hear it said, are the most important to work on the earliest because they're going to have the biggest impact in other areas. So almost thinking back on what made the biggest impact, they were all definitely the hardest things to fix. So even though they were the most um, time-consuming, the most expensive, and the most painstaking from a frustration standpoint, they all helped get me further along than anything else. Right. Again, more more wisdom. <laughs> it's good stuff, Jake. <laughs> okay, thanks. Good. Uh, so, so I think we're we're kind of coming up on our time here, and I I you know definitely thank you profusely. I mean, this was awesome. I really appreciate you pulling back the curtain and sharing this with us. Is there anything that you think uh, that we didn't cover that you wanted to cover? Um, I think you know, like I said, we covered a lot of stuff, but this was really good. The only thing I would say, and I would strongly recommend it, is everyone should have a great system of remembering things. I I really believe that I can't remember a thing without writing it down or putting it in my Evernote app on my phone, in my computer, um, putting it in my calendar. And I would say that a lot of what has helped me over the years is not relying on myself to remember just about anything because with being in a family business, having a lot of different departments, having people to manage, just thinking to yourself that you're going to remember something or that you've got to react to it, it will not happen. So find some way on your own to organize your thoughts in a way that you can react to them in your own time. Very cool. I, I, again, some really key uh, <laughs> words of wisdom there. Um, you know, I, I live by that. I, I use uh, OneNote and, you know, literally uh, everything I think about ends up someplace in OneNote. And so I couldn't agree more about um, being organized and having some sort of system around, you know, your, your efficiency and your effectiveness and, and with computers today. I mean, there's no excuse. There's just no excuse. So I think that's a really, really important reminder. So cool. Thanks for that. Um, so to wrap this up, I was just wondering um, if, if anybody wanted to get in touch with you, you know, what's the best way? Um, what's your, you know, website, LinkedIn, Snapchat? <laughs> uh, yeah, not, not Snapchat, but, um, you know, really anyone who is listening to this that wants to, you know, drop me a line, my email address is jason at coalimports.com. Um, you can find our website at coalimports.com. It's K-O-L-E. And uh, feel free to add me on LinkedIn. I'm on there too. Very cool. Well, thanks, Jason. I really appreciate your time and, and your, your honesty and pulling all this stuff back. Like I said, um, you shared some really, really good nuggets. I could, I could think of definitely a number of our clients that would appreciate this and that would hit very close to home. So kudos for, for sharing that with us. And Thanks again for your time. Really appreciate it. Great. Well, thanks again, Craig. And that was Jason Cole, VP of Operations from Cole Imports and Closeouts. Whether you're a distributor, manufacturer, or run a service business, I think you'd have to agree 
There were a lot of nuggets in there. Thanks again, Jason, for sharing all of this great info with our listeners. Thanks so much for listening to the show this week. To learn more about this episode or hear previous episodes, check out the show notes at www.fpainc.com slash podcast. And if you like today's show, please do us a favor and share it with your friends. We'd really appreciate getting the word out there. And you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. And while you're there, please do give us a review. Again, we'd really appreciate that. You can also write to us at podcast at fpainc.com. And if you want to send us a tweet, our handle on Twitter is at fpainc. Our show is produced by Bob Niekamp. And thanks to Dee Perez for coordinating everything. I'm Craig Pollock, and you've been listening to the FPA Business Before Technology podcast. And remember, with FPA, it's always about business before technology. Take care. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.